Hello, this is Angela Schaefers, the host of Your Story Matters radio show. Today we have Stan Goldberg, who is the author of Lessons for the Living, and a hospice volunteer who has shared his journey of 20 years volunteering in hospice in his amazing book, Lessons for the Living. And he's here today to share some of his insight and thoughts and his journey along the way. Hi, Stan. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Angela. It's good to have you here, and I would love, before you go into the book and what you do, your work with hospice, kind of a little bit about your background, how you evolved to this place that you're at now, because as you know, your Story Matters radio show is all about taking our stories and learning from them, and usually we learn what our passion is and what we really are meant to do with our lives through those stories, and I would sure. love for you to be able to share some of that with our audience. Well, for 25 years, um, I taught at San Francisco State University, and um, I was a full professor there, and I developed prostate cancer. And the, by the time it was identified, it was aggressive, and it had gone beyond the prostate gland. Uh, so even though the gland was removed, um, I knew that I would forever have the prostate cancer cells in my body. And the prognosis was somewhat indeterminate because the urologist really didn't know how much it had spread and how controllable it would be. So I had to re-examine my life, um, wondering about what things did I, was I still looking forward to accomplish? What things um, had I done that I wanted to ask uh, amends for, to amends for? And it began a long process of, do, of doing different things, and it eventually led me to hospice. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was in hospice, I realized that um, what I was seeing in the people who were dying was going to give me some understanding of what I needed to do to make every day that I was still alive uh, fruitful. Mm -hmm. And that was basically the, the journey. And I still think I'm on it. I've been doing hospice now for eight years. And uh, it's something that even though the book is, was completed a number of years ago, I still intend to do. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to those listeners who may not have an understanding of this what um, hospice is? Yeah, hospice was actually a movement that started in the 20s in Great Britain. And it was based, even prior to that, on the whole notion that dying is a part of living. And there comes a time in everybody's life where um, you have to accept that fact and that the use of heroic methods um, often are counterproductive to having an easier death. Mm -hmm. So the hospice movement looks at, at death as something that's part of living. And uh, when someone has been certified as having six months or less to live, they can, and these are insurance and Medicare regulations, they can enter either a hospice standalone facility or receive hospice services at home. Mm -hmm. And during hospice care, uh, there aren't any drugs or uh, medical devices that are used to prolong life, but there are palliative medicines. Palliative essentially means 
pain reduction. Mm -hmm. So it's pain reduction medicines. Um, and, you know, people are cared for again in various facilities or in their home. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you for sharing that because I know there are some people who have not had to deal with that or face that in their life or their family members, and it's important to understand what we're talking about here. And before you talk a little bit more about your experiences in hospice and the book, can you talk to the listeners about some of the emotions that you went through having been diagnosed with cancer and then, as you said, knowing that there wasn't a clean bill of health per se. There wasn't, okay, you're in remission or the other side of it, you have five years to go. How did you deal with some of that and what would you offer to listeners who may be going through the same thing? I think anybody who has received a diagnosis of a serious illness uh, starts off being in shock. Mm -hmm. it, it's you know, hearing that initial either diagnosis or prognosis that the condition you have either is terminal or it can lead to a terminal state. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that each person deals with shock differently. The way that I dealt with it is I stayed in bed for three months and watched reruns of Law and Order, mm. which wasn't the most productive way of spending my time. Mm -hmm. I think other people uh, get angry. They lash out. They they do things that one might think is unexpected for, you know, based on their their past uh, behaviors and the personality. But it all comes from this initial shock. You know, your whole world is is changed. Mm -hmm. It's unstable, and you don't know what direction to go. So I think that's the same for for virtually everybody. But then the direction you take, I think, depends upon. Uh, a lot of things. Again, some people will uh, will essentially give up, uh, or thinking that my life is over. You know, there's really no need to do anything positive with it. Other people will start looking at regrets they had. Mm -hmm. I don't have enough time to do certain things. And other people will say, you know, it doesn't make a difference how much time I have left. Um, what I want to do is I want to make every day I have left the best it can be. Mm -hmm. And it took me probably six months to finally, you know, uh, latch on to that last option. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I hear you saying is that really our reaction and response to an illness or a diagnosis or, you know, the determination that our life will be ending soon is really quite different for everybody. And I'm sure that's based on our past experiences, our knowledge, um, the things that are happening in our life at the time, those types of things. Absolutely. So along your journey, you not only went through your own issues of dealing with health matters and what to do with the rest of your life, per se, knowing what you knew now, um, you met other people that have faced a variety of illness and death and things like that and families. What can you say as far as the biggest thing that you've learned from all that collectively, if there is one thing or a couple of things? Yeah, I, I think the, the there's a couple of things that are really important. One, that I, I, I look at all the different lessons and there's lots of lessons I learned. But the one that, that stands out the most and I think is most universally applicable is not to wait. Mm -hmm. 
Just very simply, do not wait. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I'm saying, you know, don't wait to tell someone how important they've been to you. Mm -hmm. Don't wait to apologize. Don't wait to... Uh, to let people know that their presence has been important in your life. Mm -hmm. So not waiting for anything. So I, I never hesitate telling someone um, how much they mean to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I also don't hesitate, you know, asking for forgiveness when I screw up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that, that's the overall lesson. Mm -hmm. The other thing that, that happens that I think is uh, absolutely profound is as people get closer to dying, what they tend to do is to shed those parts of their personality that aren't important. Mm -hmm. And, and they, there's no more hidden agendas. There's no egos. What someone is left with as they're getting close to dying, knowing that, is this incredible sense of honesty. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, you know, I mean, I I used to work with kids a lot. You know, you hear in very young kids when they haven't been tainted too much by the world. And I hear it also in people who are dying as they're getting ready to leave it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if there was two things that I had to point out, those would be them. Mm -hmm. I love that. Both of those are very important uh, messages to share. And I want to go back to number one when you talked about um, apologizing and asking for forgiveness. I've read in several of the things that you've written, um, you talk about forgiveness. And can you share with the listeners your thoughts on that, about forgiving others, about asking for forgiveness, and how does that fit into the healing process, if you will, in preparing for death? Yeah. You know, there's, there's a, uh, a very old and famous Tibetan saying, and that is, you can throw hot coals at your enemies, but you burn your hands by so doing. Mm. And, you know, when, when I look at, uh, at a lot of the, the patients that I had where someone had hurt them physically or emotionally in some way, and they just held on to that pain for years and years, and I saw the damage that it did to them. Two of the things that I found make some deaths more difficult is when someone is getting close to dying and they feel that they need to be forgiven for something that they did. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, the need for them to forgive someone who did uh, an unskillful act towards them. Mm -hmm. so, so forgiveness and forgiving are two very important things. Mm -hmm. Again, the difficulty is sometimes it's, it's hard to reconcile those as someone gets closer to dying. And that's why I think it's so important to take care of those things on a daily basis. And that's why when I say, you know, don't wait, it's don't wait also to forgive. Don't wait to have, to have someone be forgiven. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I think great words of wisdom to share. And I know from my own experience of being diagnosed with stage four cancer um, and the changes that brings in your life and all the things that you face, a lot of the foundation of everything wrapped around death is fear. And I wonder, based on the two points that you just made, how do you see people getting over, getting through that fear when they know that these things need to happen, the forgiveness, the love? Um, the apologies, the being honest and being real, 
do you have some insight and thoughts about that? Well, um, I, I think I, I've seen a lot of people very fearful of asking someone for forgiveness, especially if it's a family member. And when, when I'm in a position to counsel them, um, one of the things that we, we try to talk about is what is it that, that you're risking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, the worst that could happen is someone would say, I don't forgive you. And that's the feeling that you have is not, it won't be any worse than the one you currently have. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, and, and even if there is that fear, uh, there, there are you know, ways of handling that. One of the things uh, is to write a letter. Mm-hmm. Writing a letter to someone asking them for forgiveness, even though you know they're not going to read it until after you're dead is healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also done the same thing uh, with, t- with telephones. I mean, calling someone purposely when you know they're not there, mm-hmm. and, but they have an answering machine and leaving a message on the answering machine. Mm-hmm. So there, there are ways of, of, of you know, getting through that fear. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to point out is that part of the hospice, as you're talking about, being a counselor and the chaplains I know that have worked with in hospice is that support and encouragement to those that need it to deal with the fears, to face the things they need to, and to take action on whatever it is um, preventing them from being at peace. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's an important part of hospice. Moving on to some of the other things you do, I know you do workshops and you write quite a bit articles and blogs and I believe that your two main purposes are to help create support during the dying process and to sensitize healthcare workers to the dying process. Can you speak more to that and kind of where the workshops and the writing kind of evolved into helping support the cause and and to really open others' minds, if you will, about the process of dying? Yeah, I, I think I, I first started doing some uh, some writing for uh, other professionals, and I was just appalled on how distant certain professionals were when they dealt with people who were dying. Uh, and I and I came to realize it was a sense of being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the initial articles that I wrote had to do with that, is, is trying to explain, you know, what would be good etiquette mm-hmm. with someone who's dying. Um, and then from there, it got expanded to looking at, you know, what can be done to make dying easier for the person who's dying and also easier for their loved ones or their, their caregivers. Mm-hmm. And so that led to a, a new book that I'm working on right now. And what, what I came to realize is that the whole dying process is fragmented. Mm-hmm. Um, you have when someone receives a terminal diagnosis, there's usually nothing that happens after that in terms of support. Mm-hmm. When uh, when they are ready to make a major de- uh, health decision, and they decide on hospice, that's when a hospice support individual is there. Um, but you know, they, they, although they're still grieving, they start the grieving process the actual grief counseling doesn't occur until, until the loved one dies. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have this, this fragmented process, and what I came to realize, it's all the same. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just different ends of the continuum. Mm-hmm. And and I look back at at what ended up being better deaths than others uh, for my patients and how that also affected the extent and the severity of their caregivers or their loved ones' grief. Mm-hmm. And I found that that they were it was all connected. Mm-hmm. So essentially, what what I came to realize is that. If you look at the dying process and there's different stages that someone gets closer, and I'm not talking about cooler loss of stages, just in time frames, terminal diagnosis, early changes, latter changes, death, grief, recovery. So that, that's how I look at death. Mm-hmm. And within, within that continuum, there are certain things that, that my patients have shown me in the past eight years that help their loved ones have easier deaths. Um, and so the first part of the book goes to that, you know, and, and there's certain very simple things, such things as when you speak to someone who is ill, you don't stand, you sit mm-hmm. before you start talking. You know, uh, you don't, you aren't concerned about periods of silence. Silence is a time that people who are dying need to compose questions and thoughts that are difficult. So there's a whole variety of those. By doing all of these things, what ends up happening is the caregiver helps the person who is dying have an easier death. Mm-hmm. And in the process, what also tends to happen is that the grief that the caregiver has after the person dies is less severe because they were able to do and say those things that they probably would want it to do before their loved one dies. Mm-hmm. So. You have that, but there's still another part of grief, and that is when when someone dies, um, you not only miss them, but you also miss the emotions they engendered in you. Mm -hmm. So you you may you know miss a husband, but also you miss the care that he gave you, or the his appreciation of what you did, or Mm -hmm. a whole variety of different emotions. Mm -hmm. And that being the case, that 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 part of grief needs to be addressed as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I do that in the latter part of the book where, where I talk about how to move on, mm-hmm. you know, how to recover those emotions that you thought were gone forever. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's what I'm currently doing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good point that you made about when you get the diagnosis, the grieving process begins, because I know that to be true for my own self. But I also want to point out that when you share that diagnosis with your family and friends and loved one, their grieving process begins also. And I think that that's part of the whole thing that you talk about and that you share in all your writing and what you do is that there needs to be some more connect, less of a gap in that part of dealing with facing death and the time frame and and what it looks like as someone's health declines and those types of things. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely, and I think that if, if we're going to look for a villain, I'm not sure there's a villain, but I think if we look at our culture, you know, our culture is one in which we disassociate death from life, mm-hmm. and if you do that, then you put a stigma on anybody who is going to have to deal with death, mm-hmm. and you don't want to talk about it, you don't want to deal about it. Uh, I remember when when I told people, you know, that I had a very aggressive form of prostate cancer, um, I could just see the, the look of uh, confusion on their face. 
you know, I mean, these are people who are good friends, and I love them, and they love me, and they didn't know what to say. You know, mm-hmm. what, what, what do you say when someone says to you, I might be dying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, we don't know how to deal with that. And mm-hmm. I think it's equally true with relatives as it is with strangers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what, what you described, I mean, I, I see very often mm-hmm. that, that, you know, it, what, what, the, the relative, the, the person who, who loves the individual who has a terminal diagnosis uh, often will just buck up and bear the grief they're experiencing mm-hmm. without sharing. Mm-hmm. That, that's a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's important for people, not just who are the ones going through the diagnosis and the dying and the illness, but those who are around them to find others that they can connect with and talk with and share their emotions and to not be afraid of sharing those thoughts and feelings because as you said there's often a lot of anger there's a lot of feelings that we don't want to admit or say publicly but they're there and they should be honored and you know put out there to be dealt with absolutely so what is the first book you wrote lessons for living what is the gist of that book well uh when I started writing it, I had no intention of it becoming a book. This was when I it started the very first day that uh, as a hospice volunteer, and I I left the bedside of the person who I was with for 18 hours, and I realized that I had been given a profound gift, and I wasn't quite sure what it was yet, but I knew that you know that there was so much wisdom in in what he was saying in our interactions that I just needed to write it down so I would remember it. Mm-hmm. And I kept doing this, and I did this for, for three years until I realized that these were not only incredible stories about how people were dying, but they were lessons for how I could live my life better. Mm. And and that became really the theme of the book, which which is... You know, regardless of of how much time you think you have left, are there certain things that you can do in your life to make every moment count? Mm -hmm. And what my patients taught me was that there are. And a lot of them, a lot of the lessons focused on, you know, very specific um, things, such as the importance of letting go of what no longer works, Mm -hmm. the importance of forgiving, um, why one you know should um, live in the moment rather than live in the future, and a variety of these things. So that's mm-hmm. that's the, the framework of the book, and it's it's what I walked away with as a lesson for myself, from my patients, and also how I've tried to take those lessons from from myself and apply them where anybody can use them. Mm-hmm. And I love something you wrote. You said. Um, you were playing chutes and ladders with a child that was mm-hmm. dying, I believe, and you talked about knowing that that's your last game. And I thought that was very profound because I thought to myself, what would we do, how would we play that game if we knew it was our last game? And, and what do you have to share about that? Well, it's, you know, with, with that case, you know, we had, uh, again, a child who was seven, and that hospice that I was volunteering at was a, hospice for kids, and they have a, uh, a policy there that if a child asks you if they're dying, we don't lie to them. We tell them the truth. And so everyone dreaded that time when, when a child would ask that question. 
And a child asked me that question while we're playing shoots and ladders. And he said, am I dying? And I really wasn't sure what to say. Um, I knew what the rule was, but I didn't know whether it was appropriate. So what I asked was, you know, why do you think you're dying? Mm -hmm. And the answer he gave me essentially had to do with the side effects of some of the palliative medicine he was taking. Mm -hmm. When I explained that, he said, okay, let's go back. Let's, let's, you know, your turn. And so for him, you know, the concept of of death wasn't the same for me. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a very profound understanding I had is that how we think of death is not only based on our culture, but also on our history in terms of age. Mm. So a seven-year-old doesn't have a real good idea of what death is. Mm. Um, and, you know, as, as, well, as much as, let's say, a 50- or 60-year-old, mm-hmm. uh, they think in terms of time. So for a seven-year-old, he doesn't have a, much of, of a uh, history, and he really can't you know, think that much about a future. We, on the other hand, can. So for for us, the concept of, of death is very different. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of, um, of if I knew this was my last game, what would I do? Uh, Stephen Levine wrote this wonderful book. It's called One Year to Live. And essentially what he said was, the question was, what if you knew you had only one year to live? What would you do? Mm-hmm. And what's happened with, with my patients is they've taken that theoretical question and they've made it, you know, very concrete. Mm-hmm. I know I have less than six months to live or I know I will be dead in a month. What do I want to do? Mm-hmm. And the answer for every person usually is very different. Right. I, had one, I had one patient uh, with esophageal cancer and he knew that he probably had less than a month to live. And I said, well, you know, is there something you want to do before you die? Mm-hmm. And he wrote down, go fishing. Mm-hmm. And so for him, that, that was important. It was something that he wanted to do. Um, you know, and no one, when they're, when they're facing those decisions, no one talks about, you know, wanting to make more money or balance a budget or, mm-hmm. or, or see a certain movie. They're all very profound things. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the the... the for me at least, I take that as saying, okay, um, what if I'm going to live for 10 or 15 more years? Can't, why can't I still have that same concept today? Mm-hmm. What do I want to do if today is my last day? Mm-hmm. And, and when you start thinking in those terms, um, I think at least, at least for myself, my behaviors became very different. Mm. Less critical of people, mm-hmm. more in doing things that are going to be meaningful, um, trying to be helpful about things, mm-hmm. and then again, living in that moment. Mm-hmm. I agree with that, and I found for my own self, those things that you mentioned and just living each day with joy and gratitude, you know, as much as possible is really helpful for me. And I just love all the things that you've done, Stan, all that you're sharing and your mission to really help bring out more awareness about death and dying and living while you're dying. And can you share with the listeners before we wrap up, how would they find your book and access to you and the things that you're doing? Sure. Um, My book is carried by most independent bookstores and also you can get it on Amazon. Um, And, you know, once again, it's called Lessons for the Living, Stories of Forgiveness, Gratitude, encourage at the end of life and if they type in anything like that they should come up on the 
uh, on the website. I also have a website, and on my website, what I've done is I have all of my articles that I've wrote, written, and I have them in categories, so if people have a particular type of interest, they can find them. So there's an area called end-of-life articles. There's another one on uh, aging and illness, and another one on recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can just go there, and there's lots of articles. Uh, the website address is Stan Goldberg, G O L D B E R G, writer, W R I T E R dot com. So it's all one word, Stan Goldberg Writer dot com. And uh, people can also subscribe. Uh, to to the website, so when a new article comes out, they get an automatic announcement of that. And that's usually about once every two to three weeks. That's great. Thank you so much, Stan, and thank you for joining us today and for sharing a part of your story. I wish you the best in your journey and with your health, and I just hope that you will continue to impact lives with your positive messages of hope and encouragement and a great way to live your life today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay. That's a wrap. How'd you think it went? I think it went just lovely. Me too. I'm very excited. I loved everything that you had to share and I thought it flowed well and I'm very excited to see um, what comes of your next book. In fact, if you uh, let me know, I'd love to have you on again to talk more about that and help promote the sale of the book. So just contact me uh, via Facebook if you want to and um, share when that's ready to launch. I will. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay. And do you have an, uh, I have your regular email, so we can send there the MP3? Absolutely. The one that I've contacted you through? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. All right. Thank you, Stan, for your time. Uh, Like I said, we'll let you know when it is going to air and then send you the MP3 following that, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you.